The weaves of the ages. The weaves are coming for you. The weaves of the ages. What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? Welcome to the Kingless Generation. I am Fergal Schmoodlock, and this is a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. How you doing? It's a real sunny day here in Tokyo. Going, heading back up toward 20 degrees Celsius, or about uh, 70 Fahrenheit, I think. Uh, it keeps seeming like it's going to be winter, but then goes right back to this weird other season. Uh, it's a little creepy, but uh, I hope your health is all right. I had a bit of a virus. There was, um, There's lots of viruses going around. And, uh, yeah, it's important to get lots of vitamins. I took Camastat. I don't know if it helped in particular. But that's that one medicine that uh, researchers at the University of Tokyo showed that it weakens coronavirus. And it's especially good to take uh, early on in the onset before you even know if that's what you have, you know. Uh, there's a page on that on their website, you know. It's not something that um, gets broadcast all the time, but you can get it, uh, I swear by that, and, uh, yeah, I got through it real quick, I'm excited to see that friend of the show, Lai Hall, is going to be on a show called Parapower Mapping, uh, which is also a really great show in its own right, and, uh, so if you want more Lai Hall, uh, head over there, as well as, of course, the Jimmy Fallon Gong episode on uh, Program to Chill. He's He's been there as well. So more Ivan Morris. I can't stop myself. I cannot. Uh, the, his second Japanese wife, she wrote a semi-autobiographical novel called Absurd Courage. She depicts herself as this bewildered uh, young little ingenue, uh, just happen, ending up in the same taxi randomly with the Ivan Morris character and marrying him on a whim is the way she depicts it, right? As I pointed out last time, if you look at the timeline, she's actually all in... She's at NYU the whole time that uh, maybe the final years of Ivan's more marriage to Ayako, his first Japanese wife, and... Uh, but then she's in Japan putting on, you know, historic first uh, theater productions of different Western things. Uh, significantly, Fiddler on the Roof, right? Um, implanting kind of Holocaust memory with an anti-communist uh, spin as well in the, in the fact that it's set in, you know, old Tsarist Russia, cruel Russia. And isn't that a bit like uh, the current Russia after all? And so on. Like, among my thin knowledge base, uh, Yasha Levine's podcast, The Russians, he talks a lot about the mythology of the captivity in the Soviet Union, which was created by the end of the Cold War, and it really started sucking people uh, away to Zionism, from communism to Zionism. And that's a big part of the story of how we got where we are today. And she also did Gone with the Wind. My God. So, there you go. Uh, Gone with the Wind. Mythology of the Old South kind of being implanted in post-war Japan. What is that 
all about well it's about yeah nostalgia for the old order and kind of indulging that and everything but sort of gently putting it to bed um allowing it to live on though as as a romantic ideal and so on and i think isn't that a huge part of what i want to say ivan morris's career was about you know if if the um if he had anything to do with the way that the mishima show turned out and i think maybe there's evidence he wasn't the only architect of that whole performance um but I think one thing that Nobuko's book really does show you is that it was a kind of a show. It was a kind of a performance. Uh, I mean, everybody says that, but everybody thinks that it was just the product of Mishima's own mind, and he decided to do what he did just on his own, not a whim, but his own secret determination that he never told anybody about. Well, what if that wasn't the case? Uh, if if that was the case, would people so connect so closely connected to him be writing quite the stories that they are here? That's a little teaser for what's to come. But the most interesting aspect of the novel, maybe, is the the insight that she at least pretends to give you. Uh, I'm going to keep on. I, the word that I want to try to use is depict depict you know you can't read an oil painting as if it were a photograph and we definitely have here depictions of the characters of Ivan Morris and his family and sort of what they were like as per, as people right in addition to their social scene their whole kind of cocktail party uh atmosphere around them right uh, Ayako was way less interested in that, right? And she, of course, ended up coming back to Japan, and that was her uh, calling. And, and she contributed to the ballet world in Japan. And so it's fitting that she doesn't leave much of a record of the social scene around Ivan Morris, because she wasn't, you know, she was around, around all this stuff, but I think what she mostly cared about was doing ballet. And, uh, see, that was what pre precipitated the divorce was Ivan eventually gave her an ultimatum, just, just quit dancing, right? He actually just told her to quit dancing, just do the social scene with me, just become a socialite. Uh, and she wasn't into that. But Nobuko very much was, and she became such a socialite that she kind of, um, kicked Ivan Morris to the curb himself and, uh, ended up with a, a knight um, although he was knighted, actually, the year after uh, Ivan died. So he wasn't knighted when Nobuko married him, in fact, in 1974. So that's, I guess that's a bit of a correction. I didn't, I was speaking as if he would have been a knight when, right, uh, they got married. But in any case, you know, you can tell from every page of this book is dripping with just uh, delight at being in on the um, lives of all these different characters around these cocktail parties. And, you know, somebody is the heir of a breakfast cereal fortune and somebody is the heir of this and that. Uh, and then you get uh, these aristocrat uh, characters from time to time as well. And that's where it gets really interesting. So again, Nobuko was born to air conditioner magnate Uenishi Keiji 
in uh, Kobe, I think. And um, it's interesting where would they have met in Kansai. I think Ivan does continue to spend plenty of time in Kyoto, in Osaka. My, I, my, in my obsession, I have actually bought all of his puzzle books as well. I now have, uh, I think there's three of them. I have them all. Uh, they are fascinating. They are fascinating. I think they will become their own episode. Uh, so I'm not going to say too much about them now, except as is relevant in the moment. But he he mentions you know a summer in Kyoto. He mentions hanging around, something in Osaka. He's in Osaka again. Uh, you know I think a lot of his right wing, his contacts in the right wing establishment, and the underworld uh, would have been in more in Kansai, in the western part of Japan. That's more the heart of that type of power. Uh, that would have been the the headquarters for some of the processing of Yamashita's gold as well. I can say from some other research that I'm working on. So here's a for just to start. Here's the lovely portrait of the the harder family. She calls them. Uh, this is the Morrises when she's first meeting the family for the first time. Uh, Mrs. Harder skipped toward us, light as a feather. Her husband following in her wake with a slow, awkward gait. The setting sun was low in the sky behind our backs. Mrs. Harder lifted her hand to shade her eyes, and a half-dozen ivory and gold bracelets clanked down her slim arm. In the distance, she looked forty, closer to a remarkably well-preserved forty-nine, but I knew her to be fifty-six. She was handsome, erect, and had a sort of antiseptic chic. Her large green eyes pierced, appraised, and challenged in one emerald sparkle which would have curdled my blood, had it not been for the fine network of charitable wrinkles around them and the mercurial charm of her smile. All in all, I wouldn't have liked to have her as my enemy, let alone as my mother-in-law. So that's a, re that's a reference to... I mean, maybe a, lots of people are prone to not get along with their mother-in-laws, but in Japan in particular, there's a dynamic whereby, famously... Mother-in-laws are never satisfied with their daughter-in-laws, never satisfied that they're good enough for their sons, and so on, right? I think this might be a Chinese thing, too, sometimes, too. In case that sounded strange to anyone, that's what she means. Above all, I think. So, a line. Darling Tristram, how lovely to see you. This is Ivan's name in this novel, Tristram. Which is, uh, you know, like a Welsh warrior's name. A lot of these names have interesting resonances. We'll, we'll come to that. Um, she threw her angular dark arms around her son's docilely offered neck. Even I could detect a foreign accent in her English. Her thin, shapely lips strenuously curling to produce a tone of harsh depth and undulating complexity. And this is your bride, what a pretty girl, a lovely monsoon complexion, sixteen and not a day older. As she spoke, she took hold of both my hands and flung me round as if we were dancing a square dance, till she positioned her back against the sun, with me in the downstream of the inflamed light and the torrent of her guttural inquiries, which ended with her asking offhandedly, And what's her name? A silence struck. Tristram was visibly taken aback. 
I knew he had written about me in a number of express letters from Japan. Not quite sure from whom Mrs. Harder had demanded a reply, I opened my parched dry lips ready but still hesitated. Surely, Tristram, you know your wife's name? Mrs. Harder laughed. Asako, Tristram replied, blushing. Ah, here we are, Frank. Mrs. Harder pulled me aside. Meet Saki. You don't mind, do you? Eastern names don't sit easily on our clumsy tongues. Must cut down to two syllables. Frank Saki. Now this, I've, I've said this last time, right? Uh, Ayako was called Yaki by the society papers in London after Jackie, which referred to Jackie Kennedy, you know, the, uh, the quintessential uh, dark-haired beauty. And so she was called Yaki. Uh, so this is a tremendous insult. This is such a... Um, I would never... You'd have to get this out of me with torture. I would never have written this in an autobiographical novel. But, um, And even worse, of course, that suggests that... So Asako is the name of the main character here. Her real name is Nobuko. So if the second syllable is being turned into this, then Buki? They would have called her fucking Buki? That's just terrible. Sad. <sighs> and then we get uh, Ira Morris here. Mr. Harder, his pale, long cheeks squirming in a shy smile, offered me his soft hand, and tears urgently rose in me. He was, after my mother-in-law, so gentle, flaccid, and unthreatening. I could tell that he had once been a very handsome man, his nose and forehead were noble, and with a receding but thick mane of white hair, he looked a philosopher-poet, the image of Bertrand Russell. Against his wife's vitality and gleamy tan, he in a long-sleeved shirt and cashmere jacket seemed frail like a meandering tendril. Quote, One of my gout days had champagne in Paris last week. Fatal, he said to Tristram pointing at his right foot with a slender cane. Gout is a disease that would happen if you are drinking too much alcohol habitually, uh, and you get like calcification in the joints starting with your toes, and it can make it hard to walk, right? So uh, the it was known as the, the rich man's disease or the king's disease in the old days. Uh, his accent was again different from either his wife's or his son's. I could not place it. Listen, children, said Mrs. Harder, and we all listened. We dine at eight. If you could unpack noiselessly, I'd be grateful. Frank must take an hour's rest before the evening. Her last sentence caused Mr. Harder to shrug his shoulders with a self-mocking protest, which went unheeded for she was already halfway down the white stone house of the down to the white stone house of the octogenarian cook mr harder strolled off to recover his sunglasses and a pile of magazines from the parasol table tristram proceeded to show me the house this is nail this will be the little chateau that they had i had read dickens's great expectations in japanese translation and seen the film version of it in kobe and I could still vividly recall the oppressing sensation, almost an acute heartburn, that Mrs. Haversham's mammoth accumulations of objects and bric-a-brac had caused me, and now I was walking into my own experience of great expectations. 
in the library and in the drawing room, underfoot, overhead, crawling on four walls, or spread on every available flat surface, anything was on show everywhere. Even a lock of hair or a menu immortalized in gilded frames, snuff boxes, painted eggs, shells, guns, armor and helmets all resignedly collecting dust and dead insects, paintings of all seasons and tastes cohabited hugger-mugger on the walls, an oil of a shot deer, for example, copiously bleeding on the white of snow, next to a delicate gauche of young ladies inside a sun-streaked conservatory. Beasts and birds, stuffed or embalmed, rampant or upright, heads or hides, all in order to eliminate offensive void. I was beginning to feel my Mrs. Haversham heartburn when we walked into a small white room. Mother has decorated this room. All white. So dépouillé, so stark. It's almost Japanese, don't you think? I choked. If he only knew what to my mother stark and uncluttered meant. Stark and uncluttered is what dépouillé means. Uh, before any guests arrived, mothers would, mother would make a quick tour of the room, putting away literally everything in sight into a cupboard called oshiide. I mean, that's like the Japanese, like, you know, the... Is it called the cupboard? Uh, closet? Meaning shove in, shove in, yeah, literally. Accepting one seasonal scroll, one seasonal flower, and one cushion per bottom. Here in Tristram's mother's white room, crammed with white sofas, with rabbit fur cushions, and chairs, and poofs, and whitish paintings, I spied white porcelain doves nesting round a white enamel-framed photograph and a white heart-shaped bonbonniere, on a side table, draped with white lace. A bonbonnier would have bonbons in it, right? Candy. Upstairs, Tristram pointed at his father's and mother's bedrooms with the expression of an usher, telling a late-arriving audience to be silent, then directing me into a room with a cascade of cotton curtain called chintz, as greasy textured as if manicured with egg yolk. He took my hand. All of this may seem to you so strange and difficult to cope with, Saki, he began. I blushed for his sake. Somehow Saki was not his style. He must have realized it himself. He went on faster. But you'll quickly get used to the way we live. This is a house of insomniacs. Earplugs, eye masks, Mogadon, Sekinol. These are sleeping pills. We try them all, yet can't sleep. Since father had his stroke a few years back, mother, very highly strung at the best of times, sleeps even less, gets into a state over his health, and puts everyone else on edge. Now, look here. He went to the door and demonstrated to me how to open it and shut it with the minimum of noise possible, and made me practice twice in front of him. The house is of stone and echoes terribly. Your bedroom floor is not carpeted, just plain wood planks, and tends to squeak at every footfall. I have my own bedroom? Of course, come, I'll show you. When a girl marries, I used to think she sleeps in the same room with her husband, economy of space apart from anything else. But this is indeed life in a chateau. I was thrilled. So there's a little taste of the family, meeting, meeting the family. Uh, this is, you know, well, another reason why I might be interested in this topic is that in a previous existence of sorts, 
uh, I came pretty close to marrying into a family not entirely unlike this. So I have my own little, I have many reasons to be interested in this topic, but even further. So she's going to the parties and stuff. Um, I mentioned the, there's a Robert Maxwell reference. I read that in the past. And we meet some of the uh, left-wing groups that come for uh, long parties all day at the Chateau, come out from Paris usually. And you, we get to see, uh, <laughs> here's one of the more striking uh, portraits of Edita's real dark side, I guess, as at least as it's depicted here. Um, Monica Bra, I will say once more, you know, based on actually reading letters, reading the letter archive and everything, again and again kind of says that Nobuko's portrait seems really off of their, you know, their relationships to each other, for example. It, it you know, at least what they write in letters to each other is nothing like the harsh exchanges that are here and the, the nasty relationships that are depicted. Um, or at least not, not as much, nearly as much. So they're scrambling to get ready for another of um, Ira Morris's big long uh, parties, right? They're, and she keeps calling them the yahoos. The people who are coming are the yahoos. In the short, uh, you know, like nonfiction piece that Nobuko wrote for Hugh Cortazzi's, uh, you know, Great Britain and Japan biographical portraits, she says that they were calling the Americans. Um, it seemed like she was. They were calling like the Americans who were fighting the Vietnam War, or you know, manipulating it, calling them yahoos. Uh, but but here it's you know all of Ira's kind of friends that who Edita wishes would not come uh, so much, or that she didn't have to do so much for them. Uh, she keeps calling them yahoos here, uh, and it, although I don't you know it is I think. At this time, Ira was the president of the Americans Against the War in Vietnam. So maybe this is specifically an event for that. Uh, it must be. Um, but it's not, you know, like those yahoos who are doing the war. It's those yahoos who are coming in the anti-war org uh, to our house. And, and Edita is not a fan of them. Uh, so, but she's saying, you know... Uh, and cool. Um, put away, uh, or keep them. Yeah, get out these different kinds of cheeses. Um, not to speak of six large brioches for tea. Quote: In case the yahoos are so damnably inconsiderate as to stay that late, as tea time. Madame Malenfant and Josiane cooked beans on the wood-burning stove and prepared a huge salad. These are the cooks, the servants. That they have. It was the same menu every Sunday. Uh, but Letty, the, the Kleins and Debashers were here only two Sundays ago. Quiche, Gigo, Quiche, Gigo. It's cruelty to animals. Can't you vary the food a bit? Mr. Harder whined. Cruelty to which animal? Let's get that straight. Lamb or to me? You aren't referring to the animals who come to eat the lambs, surely. If those yahoos and spongers and degenerates must have a varied menu each Sunday, then I pack up and go to the Mamunia this second. It's a bit hot in Marrakesh in, in August, I'd have thought. 
Mr. Harder said mildly with an innocent concern. Frank, you'll be the death of me. Yahoo's eat quiche and gigo in my house, and that's that. Hospitality is one of the oldest human instincts. So is incest. So is buggery. So she, I guess she was like really homophobic. Um, that would try. I mean, when she was talking about maybe turning the chateau into a writer's colony at the end, she kind of like dithered around with all kinds of weird ideas that, and it didn't go anywhere like many, many of her projects. And uh, one of the things she said was, yeah, actually we should, you know, if there are both men and women present, uh, there's bound to be trouble. So maybe we should only have men. You know, she kind of had, and, and also in her like Kulturmensch novels, uh, it's, the, it's the, you know, Kulturmann. It's the man, the creative man, you know, it's, and, and women, the good women uh, find ways to contribute to the great creative uh, power of the man, which brings out the, the human in all of us and whatever, nice liberal messages. And then uh, here's another important early scene from the novel where she meets her friend Jew or uh, Juliet, short for Juliet in the novel. Um, this is clearly based on Josephine Speyer. Um, Juliet is the heiress of some kind of like... Um, TV dinner fortune or something, right? Like feeding the, the proles, I guess. So Juliet, Jew, is uh, being introduced as she was hiding in Nobuko's bathroom, in her bathtub, uh, dressed in shabby, like um, very expensive clothes that are put on all higgledy-piggledy, didn't it say? And uh, she was like, just zoning out in a kind of very Margot Tenenbaum kind of way, right? She's a very Margot Tenenbaum character at the beginning of the novel. And um, she is missing her pet rabbit. She has a pet rabbit, Tarkon. Tarkon. Tarkon is the mythical first king of England in Arthurian legend. So that's important to remember. Um, Arthurian legend will become important uh, later on in this story as well. Uh, I have a rabbit, Tarkon. He's divine. Where is he? I looked around, expecting to find a rabbit hiding in the laundry basket or under my bed with these weird people one never knew. If you listen, I'll tell you, was her reply, but with neither snappishness nor the imperativeness the written words might suggest. The most striking thing about her speech was that she talked as if she were really talking to herself, sorting things out, settling accounts, back-checking, mostly spoken on inhaled breaths. He's at his this minute in the, my bathroom at the Ritz, sitting in a blue plastic pail filled with shredded Kleenex. Rich and weird with a neurotic rabbit, I thought. Pet animals often end up assuming the worst characteristics of their owners. How many boxes of Kleenex a day does he eat? He's not a goat, dummy. He doesn't eat it. He pees and shits on it. All I do is take out the dirty Kleenex shreds and add some more. Two boxes a day, about... Talking about the rabbit brought color to her cheeks, and she finally pushed her dark goggles above her forehead, opened her eyes. She, has, she had sunglasses on. She had sunglasses on, was sitting in the bathtub with all her clothes on with no water, I think. Um, the grayish pupils floated uncertainly on, an, on the egg-white, wet eyes, which, presumably due to the dense humidity, were capable of a disconcertingly long, unblinking stare. You're the oriental girl the young harder married. 
she said as if to put the record straight, then shaking her head added, Frank Harder is my dad's old friend, a spooky couple, she says. And I wonder too, well, the narrator says, spooky, I made a mental record to look it up later in the dictionary, but the sound pleased me and I laughed a little. Juliet looked at me with surprise. You're terrific, she declared. I'm told I must learn to laugh and open up. I need positive people around me. If you agree to take off your shoes, because I keep the floor clean for Tark, uh, Tarkon, short for Tark, Tarkon, I think, Tark, uh, I'd love you to come and meet him. Wouldn't you like to come and see us at the Ritz? Yes, next summer maybe, I'd like to. Not quite right in the head, perhaps, but by her genuine goodwill I was touched. Next year sounded rather unfriendly, so I added, uh, Tristram lives in London, you see, so we are going back in two days. I'll come next summer. I'll take a bus to Paris from Saint-Loup. Yeah, that'd be terrific. Too bad you're going so soon. I found an American girl called Juliet resting in my bathroom, I said, as I played Scrabble with Mr. Harder and Tristram that evening. Mrs. Harder had skipped supper and gone to bed early with a bowl of fruit and a chamomile infusion. What an unholy mess she's turned out, poor old Daniel Sugarheim, said Mr. Harder. It's a tragedy that the Sugarheim Empire has no son and heir, and not even a decent heiress. Tristram was more specific. She certainly has appalling taste in men. The Dago painter she brought with her was a really nasty bit of work. Paris, he's always calling people Dagos. I don't know what does he mean. Um, Paris, he's very exquisitely racist in this throughout. Paris is full of professional gigolos, ants swarming over a sugar heap. Quite revolting. Is Juliet's father famous? I asked. Come, come, Asako. Even in Japan, you must have eaten or at least heard of chips patata or patata crackers and popkiss. It's like Schweppes and Tate and Lyle and Sainsbury all rolled into one, said Tristram. But Tristram, you are wrong about that South American painter, you know, said Mr. Harder, belatedly re reacting to Tristram's earlier comment as he peered at the Scrabble board. I like the man. He's rather Zimpa. Letty tells me he's immensely talented. She took him to look at her paintings, and how often does she do that? He must be quite a genius. Oh, father, father. Poor Daniel Sugarheim, mumbled Mr. Harder, rather like a benign cow chewing the same old cud. So he cares about, like, bourgeois succession and stuff in, in this novel. Um, again, another thing that doesn't square if he's, like, some sincere revolutionary under it all. But like Asako in the novel, of course, we wonder, what does she mean by the word spooky? Well... The same character uses the same word to describe this character Pom, which is short for like Pomeroy, uh, which turns out to be, you know, this guy is from a blue blood, total noble family. Uh, although he's dressed in, what, what was it? Uh, just really, you know, not impressive clothing, apparently. He seems like a bit of a bad boy. This is another guy who's kind of visiting Juliet when uh, Asako finally goes to visit him, right? And um, that's Nobuko's character, goes to visit him. And, uh, or not him, but to visit uh, Juliet, yeah. And, and Palm is there. Um, this is 
from things that come later, I'll just say right now, Nick Albury. This is Nick Albury, the son of Lord Albury that Nobuko ends up marrying. Um, now, she and the Ivan Morris character never divorce in the novel, and there's no hint of anything there. Um, so her life with Lord Albury, uh, you know, in that her second marriage, I guess, uh, is collapsed into her first marriage, I think, to some degree in this, and we should maybe keep that in mind throughout. But, um, yeah, the word spooky is used for palm as well, uh, right? And one of the first things that, well, the, I think the first thing just about that palm does in the novel is go and rescue uh, Tarkon, the pet rabbit who Juliet misses, but she's spending all this time in England. Uh, the rabbit is at this hotel in France, and Palm says, yeah, I can, oh, no problem, I'll get it to you. It's, the thing is that if you transport a rabbit over a border, you, the rabbit has to be in quarantine for some months to make sure it doesn't have some disease, and she doesn't want to do that, so uh, this weird guy, you know, kind of motorcycle greaser kind of guy or something. Here, let's actually get out the passage where he's introduced. Um, they're at a party. They meet coincidentally in the bathroom again at a, par a different party. Um, there's a bit of, yeah, there's quite a lot of like, like a bodily attraction that she describes for Juliet, which is interesting because she describes a bodily revulsion every time she describes having sex with a man um except for something that i'll we'll get to later that's i can't talk about now um well interesting so then uh they come back out into the party and say i found someone who said that he would smuggle tarkon uh to london from paris right um she wants to live in London right now because in, they don't stab you in the back the way that Paris, but, um, and uh, besides, we, we talk the same language and that's a help when I go to shrinks, she says. So, again, very, you know, Margot Tenenbaum is the quickest shorthand I can think of here, right? Um, and they go up into the, they find the man, she says, that small fella with a GI haircut, kind of gangster, see him? I spotted the man who looked both kind of gangster and a choir boy. Not tall, five feet five or six, and although slim, I had a feeling he weighed more than he looked, with muscles tightly packed around the bone. His short-clipped hair covered his head like a thick coat of tar, with mossy sideburns reaching down to his jawbones. He looked extremely young and boyish, possessing none of the spruce elegance of Colin's other guests, whose trousers' pleats could have sliced cheese. His dinner jacket had the, t the tired air of tinned vegetables, and in lieu of a black tie, a velvet ribbon was tied in a dropping bow. He was not handsome like Tristram, no Gainsborough's young man in blue, but had a strong, interesting face with a protuberant, dimpled chin, thick brows drawn straight across like a beam over a set of large, dark eyes. One striking feature about him was his carriage, upright and unforced, so unexpectedly gracious. So he just says, oh, yeah, no problem, I'll go, you know, and he does. He goes over to, uh, and, and a couple days later, comes back with the rabbit under his, you know, jacket or something, right? Um, just totally smuggles it. 
And then we find out from the Ivan Morris character, who knows all about all this stuff, that he is should be called his lordship, and so on. He says, darling, please, Tristram sizzled an egg dropped in hot oil. Never, but never call him Lord Palm. You're not his over-familiar barber. His lordship. I'm sorry, I'll be careful. His lordship. Right? Uh, I'm afraid so. Does he adore her too, or is he simply after the Sugarheim money? Uh, you know, is he really into to Juliet, in other words? So, and you can't, um, and then Juliet, when she goes to see them uh, again, Juliet calls Palm Spooky. So that gives us another clue as to what Juliet means by the word spooky. Uh, very, very much more to say about this character. Uh, but for now, another fascinating character is this character, um, Colin Beaufort. There's this friend of Ivan Morris character who, uh, you know, in this is a art historian, art gallery owner of antique, you know, Japanese, specializing in Japanese antiques. And uh, his friend is like an accountant and, and things, uh, some kind of businessman, extremely well connected. He, when the... Uh, Harold Wilson administration, right? The Liberal Party gets in, uh, in around um, 1970, is it? He is uh, going around to all of uh, the Ivan Morris character's parties and wanting to sort of borrow his Rolodex and get close to all the Liberal MPs. Right, get look close to liberal politicians who now are suddenly important in a new way. Right, so this is the moment as well of, of course, the Harold Wilson, the attempted coup against Harold Wilson, and there's this plot that grows against him. Yeah, and uh, you know there was a good uh, episode recently on ghost stories for the end of the world about that, so I would encourage you to check that out. I don't have anything more to add than that. Um, I will try to bring what I could glean from that to my speculations about what is all happening on this little scene here that we're talking about. But that plot was known as Clockwork Orange, named after the movie. And uh, it was kind of foiled, but you had all these very high-ranking uh, members of the British establishment just calmly plotting the the military coup uh, against this liberal uh, prime minister, who they uh, perceived as you know suddenly going to hand the country over to the communists or, or something like this, right? But it seems like maybe you know as is likely, Ivan Morris is part of the kind of um, more left liberal establishment. As you can see from the puzzle books, okay, the first puzzle, The Road to Heaven, uh, we'll take a little interlude for that. Um, reaching a fork in the road where one way leads to heaven and the other to hell, you encounter three shadowy figures. One of them, Gandhi, always tells the truth. Another, Goebbels, never tells the truth. And the third, De Gaulle. 
sometimes tells the truth. It is impossible to distinguish among the three figures. So de Gaulle, also the target of um, far-right coup d'etat plans, he famously said to Kennedy that he wasn't sure which one of them would get assassinated first. Ivan Morris sees him as a, as a middle, middling figure, right? So the names of these figures are interesting. The puzzle itself, of course, is quite interesting. Um, the, the answer is a two-part uh, strategy. The first question you want to ask one of them about the other one, something, I forget. And you, you, have, to, um, you have to eliminate which one of them it, you know, cannot be de Gaulle. So you have to, then you know, you know, at least I'm, I've reduced it to, there's a question you can ask that allows you to do this. Um, you can eliminate who, who is not de Gaulle anyway. And you find one who's not de Gaulle, you ask that one, uh, you know, what would your opposite, would your opposite say this? And if you do that, um, you know, both the Gandhi and the Goebbels will answer, will give the same answer, um, and you'll be able to determine uh, which way is the right way from that. Um, another interesting, you can also alternatively ask, uh, if I were to ask you um, if this is the case, uh, interestingly, the Goebbels, who lies always, uh, would still would have to lie about what he would hypothetically say. If you use a hypothetical, the, the eternal liar has to lie about what he would say, and so he will actually say the true thing. So they both will then speak the truth. Uh, no matter, you know, you don't have to know which one is, uh, which, one is which. So that's how that one works. Uh, uh, there's more to say about just the whole fact that he's so into these puzzles and what these puzzles do for him and his circle. But he's constantly name-dropping his circle, his, his private people that he hangs around with a lot. Um, Michael Nibs is very important. In, at, in the introduction to this first book, he thanks... Uh, oh, well, so, but I wanted to say, okay, the Gandhi Goebbels de Gaulle, doesn't that tell you about his liberal worldview? Okay. He has a very liberal worldview. I think he is just a very sincere, neurotic, bureaucrat-type uh, intelligence agent, right? I mean, he is a spy, but he is like kind of a true believer of the liberal variety, you know? Uh, even though he, you know, as, as I've read uh, from his little summary of his longer book, um, if Japan was to, were to sort of seem to go maybe down the far left or the far right path, we would make sure that it goes down the far right path, and that would be fine with me as well. He does say that, but um, yeah, he doesn't love that. He just wants to, he, he doesn't think that there's, he thinks that the best choice is just to somehow keep us precariously perched in uh, liberalism, right? Um, and of course, the love of Gandhi. Gandhi was a pedophile. He demanded a nine-year-old girl to sleep with every night, supposedly so that he could train himself to resist his temptations around nine-year-old girls. Uh, and everybody thought this was uh, totally cool uh, thing for him to be asking everywhere he went. And uh, he had all kinds of funny things about his money uh, for another thing. And his the role that he's given in the Indian uh, Revolution, uh, Indian independence movement, basically just 
ignores the fact that it was masses of people with guns and, and ready to fight for their liberation that actually uh, got India free. Although it is true that no socialist movement really got at the helm of that, you know, from the... Uh, and that's why you have such a stark difference when you line up India's development and China's development. You have a ready-made comparative case. They both achieve independence about the same time. One of them is communist and one of them is not. And you see a very different record of recovery from being colonized right there. And then, of course, you have the Nazi just as a totally demonic figure that comes out of hell itself, nowhere, for no reason. Uh, just They just are that way. You know, that's just the cosmic evil principle coming into the world. Has no cause, has no material basis, um, all this sort of thing. Uh, but then, so in the introduction, he thanks Michael Nibb. He thanks Sir Hugh Casson. Um, he thanks... John Train. If you've listened to a lot of parapolitical podcasts, you will have heard this name John Train. He is another super powerful financier, first of all. Uh, he's uh, investment advisor and writer is what his Wikipedia says. Um, but he served in the U.S. Army. And after working in Wall Street, um, he founded a firm and so on. He... Um, became, he had part-time appointments from Presidents Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and Bill Clinton as Director of Government Agencies and Entities Dealing with Africa, Asia, and Central Europe, respectively. Uh, and a big reason for that, he had a huge role in uh, the Afghanistan trap. And he, a lot of his papers are devoted to different foundations that he founded dealing with Afghanistan Right, he was part of trapping the Soviet Union into and creating artificially its own Vietnam out of Afghanistan. John Train, just one of many. So you know that would be a, a, a candidate for who this guy, this Colin character is, especially given what Colin does in the wake of the Ivan Morris character's father's death. Um, you have there. Maybe I'll just say that right now. Um, no reason, he, he died, they, Nobuko depicts there being almost a kind of like inheritance battle between Ivan and his mother over the, you know, American meatpacking fortune. Uh, there's, I, I think maybe Monica Bra said specifically there's no evidence for this ever having happened and no reason why it would have happened uh, in real life. But supposedly there was some, in, this, in the novel, there's, there's, so Ivan quickly takes a trip to New York and Colin, it's found out later that Colin sort of helped him to deal with whatever, some business there. He comes back uh, and then his mother, the first couple meetings of his mother, with his mother after the death of his father, um, he sort of like locks and hides the key of some really nice wine that he had. Uh, and that would be another thing, some really nice wine would be another thing. Uh, doesn't John Train found a winery? Yeah, he's written, he writes books, The Olive, Tree of Civilization, The Orange, Golden Joy, and Comfort Me with Apples.
Which, <laughs> uh, that's a line from the Song of Songs as well, isn't it, <laughs> right? Um, Comfort me with apples, sustain me with figs or something. Uh, for I am weak with love. Also prominent in the Zohar. But yeah, John Train has his own winery um, in France, a very nice, nice winery. Uh, so would Ivan have gotten some of that wine maybe uh, at, in the wake of maybe a lot of investment services rendered in New York right after he was moving a bunch of money around uh, in the wake of his father's death and all that? And then when he comes back, uh, he hides the key. He instructs the servant, like he's not even there, I don't think, to see his mother. There's some serious like cold... Uh, moments between them in Nobuko's novel as she depicts these things, right? There's always the possibility, is this some kind of weird hit job against this family that the establishment ultimately hated so much? As you see in them, you know, they get, get kicked off the boat of Sam Spiegel, right? Sam Spiegel, the Hollywood magnate, basically the, the Harvey Weinstein of his time, right? Uh, just learns that he's the son of Ira and Edita Morris and kicks him right off the boat, avowedly for their do-gooder activities, right? So, um, yeah, I was mentioning this is all in the background. So the Colin character, yeah, he's trying to get in with the labor MPs under the, the Harold Wilson uh, government. And uh, so it's funny, Nobuko always hates putting on kimonos. That's a good contrast, too, with Ayako. Ayako was, was, describes her early London party days and so on, uh, having plenty of fun, and, but sometimes drinking too much, sometimes messing up her kimono in a funny way, and she had to like walk home. She describes walks, walks of shame and so on. So Ayako and Nobuko are indeed kind of polar opposites in that sort of way. Speaking of smuggling things, uh, there are very interesting comments by the Ivan character. You know, I'm always listening. What is, could this be something that he would have really said? What did he know? What did he not? Um, so Palm and Jew are getting married, right? Um, I'll show Palm a bit of America before coming back here to settle, said Jew, after she had changed... From into a traveling ensemble by Givenchy. Uh, Daddy's London office has already been told to look for a nice quiet house with a small back garden for Tark. I asked them to find it not far from you, Suki. She calls her Suki, so she even mangles the mangled version of the name. Uh, but she doesn't, Nobuko doesn't seem to mind. She really loves this. It's her best friend. But anyway, this uh, Palm character. I've already told you this is definitely Nick Albury, mostly, uh, who's the son of Lord Albury, a theater impresario, whom uh, she ultimately, Nobuko, marries the same year that she divorces Ivan Morris, right? And um, I've read a whole book about Nick Albury and his activities. Unfortunately, there is a, a very classic kind of famous book that he wrote himself about his activities, which is almost impossible to find. I could only find on the internet similar pleas to my own, uh, just asking, does anyone have it? Does anyone have a digitization? Uh, nobody has it. It's, it's called uh, 
rehearsal for the year 2000. And it's all about the kind of different hippie cults that he founded. He was a, a like a founder of all different kinds of hippie cults. And he's this figure that moves in and out of... He, I mean, he's very much like the father of the British or one facet of the British um, counterculture that is strangely not really in, in tune with the actual revolutionary like materialist left people who are actually have a plan for a better world it's more t people talking about king arthur and talking about you know doing utopian kind of happenings um yeah he he was a kind of social technology experimenter he worked uh largely with an early project called bit which was um taking the kind of free labor that you get from a cult of hippies and putting that into a service where people could call in at any time and ask for information and this really was being put to the at the service of uh, like the unhoused for example they were doing lots of housing uh, advocacy which really does seem quite cool for you know at the time uh, you know and this is just before the welfare state is about to start being dismantled. It's, it's just before neoliberalism comes in, of course. So it was still possible to do so much more of this stuff. A lot of laws get changed and, and things so that this isn't possible. Uh, but there's like, it's a squatters movement, right? Squatting movement, squatting in all kinds of empty buildings all over here and there. Um, this does, however, overlap in certain ways with things like uh, Clockwork Orange which was connected as well to like child trafficking rings, um, right? Uh, again, consult the Ghost Stories for the End of the World episode on that, but you have, it's the King Cora Network. The King Cora Network involves buildings like, was, that, was this part of why I have in my notes, Elm Guesthouse and, and Dolphin Square, London. Um, I didn't check if that was one of the same places. There's lists of all the places where these things were happening, right? Certain neighborhoods in London. Um, somebody who knew London better would be able to connect this all up much better than I can. But I'll just lay this out. Inevitably, everything I say, I encourage people to take it and take the next step, run with it, right? Um, but Nobuko describes actually meeting secretly with, uh, with Nick. Um, the Nick Albury character um, to have sex, in fact, uh, because she's under all kinds of pressure in the novel to produce a child for uh, the Ivan Morris character, which might make sense. Uh, there's nothing I, I didn't. I, I'm not sure as if you would find in the letter archive anything about uh, Adita's desire for a grandchild. There's there's um, she, Bra did, Bra, Monica Bra doesn't mention anything like that, uh, right? But there is that puzzle, of course, of like uh, Ivan claiming to be sterile and Adita believing him, at least, uh, even if he didn't believe it. But uh, so this cult leader character, Palm, right, the, um, just sort of nonchalantly says, well, I'll give you a child. It's no big deal. You know, he's... And... Uh, the it's phrased like you know the nobuko character understood that juliet 
wouldn't even have cared if she, even if she found out. And th these things kind of happen, you know, before, not against her will, but sort of before Nobuko really um, thinks about it too much and so on, in a way that kind of lets her off. It gives her a kind of nice moral ambiguity for a lighthearted novel and all of that. Uh, but she describes meeting Palm in these places. So we get this story about involvement of Palm in the drug trade, you know, he's, which I would have thought. He's good at smuggling a rabbit. You know, why would he be so confident about smuggling things past uh, customs, right? Um, so Tristram is sharing, like, hot goss about the, the new groom, you know, and he's, like, very happy. Um, detecting a smirk of schadenfreude in his tone, I knew the histoire would not be flattering to Palm, quote, a penniless second son who's bagged an American heiress, unquote. One evening in his second year at Cambridge, Palm turned up at his mother's Chelsea flat and, kissing her as charmingly and affectionately as only he could, looked into her already alcohol-blurred eyes, Mummy, come to my wedding tomorrow, Kensington wet Registry Office at four, will you? He wanted to save a beautiful Mexican girl from deportation. She had overstayed her welcome in the United Kingdom on a tourist visa, working undeclared in a health food shop in Islington. That is a place name I remember from the, the scene, right? The Dowager Countess staggered to her feet and telephoned her solicitor, but Palm had just turned 21 and there was nothing the law could do to stop him from marrying the stranger. The marriage with two salesgirls from the health food shop as witnesses proceeded, but the following day the girl was arrested by the police on allegation by Interpol that she was the leading, a leading member in an international drug smuggling ring. She vociferously protested that she was being persecuted for her left-wing political convictions and that the drug charge was a frame-up. Naturally, the matter attracted extensive press coverage. Palm refused to believe the allegation or to listen to his mother's wail of reason till it was found that his wife was in fact already married to an Algerian student awaiting trial on drug charges. The marriage was annulled. End of story. That was the background to Palm's departure from Cambridge. Tristram shook his glass to rotate the ice cubes, downed the rest of his drink, and gasped. So we get, you know, the drug trade coming in. Um, and Algeria? Was this the Algerian Revolution is somehow connected here? Um, there's no... You, maybe somebody can dig further. We get a nice little vignette of one of the parties at the Chateau with all the um, so-called leftists who would attend that. I'm not real sure. Uh, it's They're just all talking about Right. This being my second summer in Europe, I understood better what people were saying, either in English or in French, and began to detect a stench of sham and pretense as I sat amongst my parents-in-law's guests. Napalm and automatic rifles on one side, and barefoot Viet Congs brandishing sliced bamboo spears on the other. Shakespeare, en effet, n'est-ce pas? What? Oh, wow, oui, oui, that's a good one. After 30 years of hell with Marie Allen, he's now perfectly happy being alone with a Doberman bitch. Who's she? A Doberman pincher, darling. A dog. This is a, like a vignette of different conversations that she's hearing or having. 
My worldwide capital and income are locked up in a Liechtenstein company, what they call an établissement, which is in turn owned and managed by a Panamanian company. And as I'm not resident in any one particular country for over 90 days in any one year, no country in the world could possibly tax me. Unquote. Letty would kill me for saying this, but who is Letty? Shh, our hostess, Madame Harder. She's extraordinarily well-preserved for her age, a figure of an 18-year-old. She paints, you know, works at it like a maniac, yet like most dilettantes, she's had exhibitions only in smart cultural backwaters like Lausanne, Antibes, or Baden-Baden. What are they like, her paintings? Abstract, of course, intense, jarring, self-opinionated, the kind you couldn't possibly live with. I mean, she. This is not accurate either, because of course she's she was a novelist, and the novels that she wrote were read by people. They had some quite a bit of popularity. I mean, they're they're published all over the place. You know, of course, the most the big success was the Flowers of Hiroshima, and it expresses a relatively sound kind of anti-nuclear weapons uh, message. I think. And so uh, Juliet and Palm, right, the Nick Albury character, um, and Josephine Speyer, I think is her real name, uh, they were really, like, and Nick Albury anyway, I don't actually know about Josephine Speyer at this time, uh, but he would have been really around different places in Britain, mostly. Um, I think he really did take a trip to California at a certain point. Maybe just suffice it to say, anyway, this isn't real, but in the Nobuko's novel, she makes them go to Vietnam and start a kind of cult uh, there. They start their first kind of therapy meditation service for people there, and everybody got better, and it was wonderful. Uh, and hearing about this through a letter, uh, the Nobuko character is you know, kind of proud of her, admired her. Um, when I gave a resume of the long letter, Tristram said, the Ivan character sounds more like a voyage in search of heroin. According to someone I knew at Oxford who's recently come back from Kathmandu, 75% of his work as cultural attaché at the British embassy there was to pick up unconscious young bodies from the ditch and ship them back to their often rich and mighty parents. So uh, Ivan Morris definitely knew about the drug trade, I think. Uh, did he know that it's mostly um, the establishment that does the drug trade? That is not as clear, right? He seems to think that uh, these leftists, I don't know, that's the way it's framed here anyway. Um, in, in Nobuko's framing, that's all we can attribute. Uh, it's just this is Nobuko's portrayal is that uh, he seemed to think associate these left-wing circles with um, the drug trade we see again and again. Is someone who knew John Train so and was trading puzzles with him all the time uh, as a fellow insomniac perhaps would that have really been uh, <laughs> his understanding? I wonder. Um, sounds like he knows about the Golden Triangle anyway. And if he knows about it, I mean, as, come on. No, he's an, he's an intelligence agent. Um, 
another wild little detail is that Nobuko gets like he gets mad at Nobuko for buying some face cream that apparently required it didn't require but like it didn't say it required it but for some reason she transferred some money from a Swiss bank account to buy face cream uh, is this really about face cream that's another little detail didn't really don't can't really take it anywhere uh, Colin. So Colin has a, a, a chateau villa in Italy that they borrow at one point. Um, you know, Peggy Guggenheim is a, is a relative of Ivan Morris's who actually has a villa in Italy. Colin gets along well with Nobuko, I guess. Previous women in, in Ivan's life had apparently gotten between him and this Colin character. So I wonder what that would be about. Did Ayako not get along with if he's John Train. If if Colin is John Train, you know, it was in New York that they, their relationship really went off. And um, did she either get along very well with John Train, or like too well, or not, not well at all with John Train? And they had a fight about that. So anyway, this, uh, whether he's John Train or who, whoever he is, this Colin character invites Nobuko character to lunch and this is what he, he updates them about the uh, Nick Albury character and um, his and Juliet, Juliet, who maybe is Josephine Speyer, his eventual wife at the end of his life. Um, he says, would you believe it, Suki? At this very moment, your friends are somewhere not far from Saigon in a jungle infested with Viet Cong and napalm bombs running a thing called Saigon Sanctuary with some oddballs of the same bent as them, all Vanderbilts and Whitneys, of course. All the, the hippies are all just, like, secretly uh, elite uh, scions of elite houses. Um, Saigon Sanctuary, SS. Hear the sinister echo from the past, eh? According to Dan... <laughs> so, like, how pilled is this? This is actually, like... No Nobuko might have knew some shit. Um... According to Daniel, uh, Colin called Mr. Sugarheim by his Christian name with evident relish and pride. Um, Mr. Sh so that would be the father of the Juliet character. Um, it's a sort of free-for-all Doss House come temple, and you know what a hawk and staunch Republican he is. Well, Daniel swears that the whole thing's perfectly above board, and Palm doesn't go out of his way to provoke the military police by hiding conscientious objectors or deserters. I mean, so this is South Vietnam. This is under the military dictatorship there. If you believe that, you can believe anything, eh? He mostly takes in young kids who have been shell-shocked, so says Daniel, and he treats them with analysis, prayer, yoga, and Zen meditation, and feeds them with brown rice rather like an RSPCA camp for strays with oriental religious and macrobiotic overtones, see? All I can tell you, Suki, is that I met a number of Upper East Side New York shikniks against the war in Vietnam who thought Palm's doing a terrific job and sent fat checks to his so-called SS. With half the American press camping out in Vietnam, as it were, my dear, they've been become quite notorious. One Sunday magazine had photographed them in sari and loincloth, chanting Hare Krishna. 
sitting cross-legged on straw mats laid out on the hard earth, looking rather sexy, I must say. So did anything like this really happen? I don't I can't find anything like that. People hippies actually going to Vietnam and being there is something that seems kind of like stitched in. I don't is that a reality? Is there any reality to that? Maybe I have to learn about these things, but um that's amazing if so. I don't think that, you know, I have reasons that you'll will become clear for thinking that uh Palm has to be mostly Nick Albury, and Nick Albury didn't do anything like that, according to anything that I've read. Um, again, I couldn't get a hold of his own memoir, so you know, someday if I ever do, that may unlock a lot more doors. But I guess we'll see. There's a uh, there's a choice moment where Adita vetoes a new I, new handbag that Ivan buys, and she says again with a homophobic comment, "Every pansy in Paris has one just like that." Amazing. Um, we can see as well that, you know, we've established, I think, that the Morrises are definitely a diaspora Jewish family. And they don't even, you know, Nobuko avows, and through this novel as well, it's like dramatized that she doesn't know they're Jewish, but they are. And that is part of the plot. That becomes clear at a certain point. Uh, and I, she might have experienced that as some kind of a trauma or something. I mean, she seemed in her first-person nonfiction prose to be an avowed racist and, uh, you know, proud of her unbroken uh, racial stock and, and so on. So, I don't know. But so we've established that they're not Zionists is what the thing. They're not Zionists, but Nobuko depicts him having a lot of anxiety about things happening in the Middle East uh, which would be the Six Days War. This is another war involving uh, the Zionist entity. And, uh, yeah, it's expansion. That was when it's really transitioning to open expansionism in the Middle East. It also seems that Ivan was quite worried about the ongoing war in Vietnam, uh, although just Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia in general, which is a more accurate understanding of that conflict. It was more about uh, presence, uh, a certain kind of Anglo-American presence uh, all throughout Southeast Asia. Um, again, that would connect to his knowledge of the drug trade and the Golden Triangle and all of this. What about this? Um, this is about the same time that the character in the novel is a anxious about a big museum exhibition. This would be this would correspond to the publication of Morris's big book about the world of the tale of Genji called The World of the Shining Prince and his anxiety about its reception. And then, yeah, here we get the moment where the father, Ira Morris, right? Ira Morris dies and um, Nobuko depicts this tense little moment where Ivan quickly flies to New York and nails down his inheritance kind of apart from her in a way that, and they have a bit of a falling out for a minute there over that. And she asks Colin what happened. And Colin cryptically replies, a variation on the theme of King Lear. So there's something about inheritance, I guess. Bad heirs of some kind? <laughs> I don't know. Um, again, if this is John Train, then it's wild. And again and again, we see the hippie culture and the way that it is functioning 
uh, as a kind of domestic Phoenix program. And it may be, even be connected to the Phoenix program somehow directly. You know, that's what that really sounds like, the idea of, like, taking shell-shocked people and trying to heal them with hippie-type methods. Uh, it's That's looking like um, there's a kind of... It's MKUltra and Phoenix all together, all rolled into one. Uh, in at least the fictional world of this novel, it's happening uh, both in the domestic Anglo-American sphere and in Vietnam itself somehow. But there's a kind of sardonic comment by the Ivan character uh, in the novel at a certain point, talking about the um, jo- Jolene character. And um, she goes, they're going to buy uh, the country estate of one of Palm's aristocratic relatives uh, for various reasons to, to sort of run their cult, which they're calling a world elsewhere uh, in this. But so here is the Ivan character, right? After she left, Tristram stroked his chin. Hippiedom suits her. She's sexier, livelier, and at last has something to say. Although, mind you, what she says is as predictable as a toilet flushing. So, on the neurosis of the super-rich and the inarticulate frustration of the misfit aristocracy depends the alternative shape of our future society. What a depressing thought. Why don't they cut the cackle, just buy India and a few starving African nations with their American Express cards, and forget about their bleeding consciences? He downed his dry martini, and sinking low in the armchair, rubbed his temples in slow circles. So we can see there, he knows that hippiedom, he knows that hippie culture is is an op uh, created around... Well, but no, he doesn't know that it's an op. He he thinks that it genuinely is motivated, though, by these misfit aristocrats and frustrated uh, ultra-rich, these kinds of um, Margot Tenenbaum characters. And that's a very interesting uh, flip, twist on the standard narrative, of course, of the counterculture, which is often that, you know, one, the the most blue-pilled version would be that it's just totally organic and bottom-up. Another, the next most would be there were authentically a lot of elite youth who were disaffected and said, I want no part of this. And then they were a big part of creating the hippie culture. It was like, you know, class traders from the upper class. Uh, but then, you know, you take the McGowan pill you're going to know that, or you just look on fucking Wikipedia, whose people's parents are, um, you start to really suspect that there was a deliberate uh, campaign, right? Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon is the book, if you don't know, um, right? The Laurel Canyon scene is one pattern of this kind of thing. And this is what we're going to get into in the following episode, is basically the British Laurel Canyon uh, of, a, of a sort, which is what this Palm character is based on uh, one of the the central figures in that, who is an aristocratic child who seems to be uh, orchestrating all this stuff in the hippie culture and in the counterculture in Britain uh, at the same time as being connected to all these weird things like the drug trade and Project Phoenix and much more deliberate, uh, sinister, nasty shenanigans that you and I know were going on at that time too. So... And, but that that element of it is not entirely opaque to uh, the Ivan character here, and it's not in, known to 
I don't think Nobuko herself, the author of this book. But through the dialogue of these characters that uh, she writes, right, she's revealing uh, some very interesting things about the actual Ivan Morris and the circles that he was in, right? He, so he criticizes this, but he, he actually wishes for more openly reactionary methods, I guess. Is that what he means by buying, just buy Africa and India, buy the poor countries? Um, uh, does that mean like just pay to fix them and then you can forget about your conscience? Or does it just mean go and rule them with an iron fist? It's kind of either one would certainly go well with what we know of his liberal politics. Uh, as Palm and Juliet are getting into their uh, new mansion, they're fixing up their old mansion with the help of all this free labor from their cult members of their hippie cult. And uh, their manservant in charge of the kitchen is introduced as Claude, a 19-year-old French boy, son of an ex-Gaullist minister, so Charles de Gaulle's faction, whom Palm had rescued from a police station in Benares, that's in India. Accused of attempted arson, said Jew, high on heroin, he didn't know what he was doing. Jew called the narrow-shouldered gentle boy, my boy Friday, and taking advantage of the unwieldy dignity of her pregnancy, used him on errands and small chores all day long. Claude, on his part, adored Jew, comme le pain je mange, like the bread I eat, and seemed totally devoted and in awe of the mistress of the house. Jew had no domestic help except for a few old farm laborers who gave some hours of slow work in return for their free cottages, and two women from the village who came in five mornings a week, which with the house so rambling and the grounds so extensive, was far from sufficient. As you can see, they, develop, they depend on all these uh, regimes of feudal labor, uh, which Ivan Morris himself, right, at his parents' chateau in France, uh, also does. Uh, and the hippie cults here are just creating new developments of that, new, new types of feudal uh, labor relationships there. And meanwhile, they have this uh, mission of helping the, the veterans, literally, right? And you can see that again and again in this British hippie movement. Uh, they appeal again and again to fucking King Arthur and all kinds of traditional ideas uh, in this way that... Uh, and you can see that in the American one, too, of course, all the time when you really look at it. Uh, and at, but at the time, you know, that just sort of passes for, oh, that's very, really reasonable. It gets more people on board, of course, but hides the, the actual nature of the thing, which in this case, right, um, actually uh, healing the, what they're doing is healing the perpetrators of, of imperial violence and not their victims, healing the war criminal. He also meets a, an Indian guru named Mashi, who could, may or may not be a spin on Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. I don't know. He was a great guru, pioneer of a chain of communes throughout the United States, and he'd probably come to advise Palm on how to set up and run his type of commune here at Falaise Hall. That's the name of their uh, aristocratic residence that they're fixing up. And then whatever antics they get up to, uh, this is, it's always the main character is going away from the Ivan Morris character to hang out with them. But then when she is back with Ivan, he knows about everything that they're doing somehow. 
And, and the Nobuko character remarks on this. How do you know all this? And he says, one way or the other. Apparently, just a few days ago, Ju rang up Colin asking him to stand surety for bailing out a young American who was found in possession of cocaine. I gather he was there how to teach the, to teach the hippies how to manufacture some hair pomade. Oh dear, I thought everything was going so well for them. And he says, oh yes, it is going well. So, you know, again, the plan might be something different. Um, what I've told you only confirms how well the commune is operating within its field, its fluid, free-for-all, multi-purpose framework. <laughs> so he knows all about it. He's like some kind of sh shadow master. And they mention, actually, these people are Seventh-day Adventists or Christian science freaks or something, they say, that, got, um, that are patsies for the whatever drug thing. Um, but... Would that really be Seventh Day Adventist, or would it be Christ? Would it in Christian Science? Would it be more Scientology? Would it be Scientology? So the Indian Guru has has places in Tennessee and different places. This would correspond maybe to um, the is it the Church of Venus? I think is is a real org that was connected with some one of these guys, and then that had a sister organization in the United States that was all over the place, um, je centered around Jefferson Poland, uh, Jefferson Fuck Poland, or Jefferson Klitlik, uh, a co-founder of the Sexual Freedom League and convicted child molester, who uh, one of his religions was something like this, and it was a sister organi organization. We'll get into that again. I'm of the mind that a podcast as a form of oral literature should repeat itself. I can never remember anything, especially these complicated parapolitical podcasts, unless I listen to them multiple times and unless people repeat themselves. I love it when they repeat themselves. So, Oh, and they bake biscuits that they call Alice Tokeless Biscuits which is a wonderful touch. Alice B. Tokeless was the lifetime partner of Gertrude Stein and together with, you know, the, she has a cookbook called uh, the Alice B. Tokeless Cookbook, and it's also kind of an autobiography in addition to having recipes. So it's a fun kind of mix of prose and recipes. And it talks about sort of hiding out in France in the countryside with Picasso and cooking very rustic, uh, beautiful French cuisine from fresh chickens of very specific sizes and things so uh that's a that's a, cl a choice reference as well but in any case notice uh whether to whatever extent nobuko is aware of it and wants us to know this uh the ivan morris character knows all about these cults and that their real function is to create and mobilize free labor and to traffic drugs, and to pioneer new forms of social control. He knows this. Why does he know this? They sure don't make Japanologists like they used to. <laughs> so the story continues. Uh, the Jewishness of Ivan's family is revealed, and that's a big deal in this plot. Um, we have May 68 in this novel. Uh, predictably, Palm and his disciples go and try to join uh, the... Strikers in the Renault factory, 
They joined, uh, joined the students inside the liberated Sorbonne and squatting around the 10-foot-high barricades on the Boulevard Saint-Michel. Uh, they just got him in, in everywhere. Um, yeah, what kind of a network of uh, provocateurs or uh, spies did uh, she know about? Right? Palm was there as a gladio commander, and Nobuko knows it somehow. And uh, from there, though, the character Palm is very sort of dispirited, and he launches on a kind of Mishima rant about how a dying, a, a Nazi death, kind of very spectacular death, is the only way uh, to bring meaning to your life. At long last, at 25, I'm beginning to understand the way of life is to die. At any moment, if there's a choice, choose an earlier death. First come, first served. Nothing complicated. Simple, straight, calm. And she keeps... She, Nobuko's big conceit here is like, yes, I am an Oriental, and you sound very Oriental. You are learning Oriental ideals. Authentic uh, Japanese culture. And so on. Uh, Mine, death will have to be appalling bad taste, instant, grotesquely physical, bones splintering, blood spurting, and not a vestige of an everyday routine. Fussy, she says. Of course, I am fussy. The drawback is that we live in an a the age of non-heroism, non-credo, and in the world run by the strutting weak, the unproud, the sneaky, the underhanded, and the unshameable. Today, even if I died for a spiritual revolution or from too much compassion and love for humanity, the media would make it look stupid and banal, as if I slipped on a banana skin and cracked my skull. Think of it, Suki. Wouldn't that be a waste? Wouldn't that be a shame? And then there's this plot thing about how Nobuko wants to have a baby, and that's what will endear Ivan's family to her. Now, it, as I've mentioned, I think, the... It's interesting to contemplate whether that could have been any real at all in some way. Uh, they do say that, they repeat it here as well, that you know maybe Ivan's sperm isn't quite up to snuff or something, but, but there's the sense that he might get her pregnant if he tried. And he's depicted really trying. He's depicted being terrible at sex. Uh, she just waits for him to finish pumping like a, a weak little steam engine trying to chug its way out of a tunnel, she, she says. He fin his face finally came out of the tunnel, and I was so relieved for him. <laughs> Savage. And uh, so it's kind of decided among her and her uh, hippie friend, uh, Palm, that, oh, he'll just give her a baby, and, you know, then, then she'll be fine. And then you get this gossip columnist coming up to them in a restaurant, and it's really fascinating because the gossip column stuff is sounds like it could be about Mishima. And the reason why I will say that that's interesting, will I tell you that right yet? Um, it, so there's rumors about he might be having sex with his male cultists. He has this tight-knit group of men around him at all times. And they have this fanatical religious devotion to him. And it, it looks very homoerotic. Another possibility is that could this have something to do with the Kinkora allegations? Is the real life, you know, character of Palm, is that Nick Albury, whoever, 
Um, seems to be in on all kinds of drug trade, Phoenix program, seeding uh, the hippie culture, and seeding uh, the drug culture, seeding uh, free love and all this. Was there some relationship to the Kinkora network that, you know, that maybe Nobuko wasn't even aware of consciously, right? Well, so she's meeting him to make this baby, and uh, she's fucking him in a dirty gladio basement. Here you go. I think i got to read this. From the Westburn Park tube station, we walked to a basement room devoid of lock or doorknob, but equipped with a grimy bolt on the inner side of the door. Just a room with a rain and soot-streaked window, a bed with a sheet and a green acrylic blanket, two bent wood chairs and a slab of mirror hanging on a nail on the wall. The most ecstatic lovers in novels were found in greater discomfort, a forest clearing or an insect-infested haystack, I told myself, and facing the wall began removing my clothes in an uncouth hurry, as I feared that if I left undressing to palm, he might just toss my clothes no matter where and how onto the filthy floor. I piled each item of my clothing on a chair after having vigorously blown at its surface. Palm snorted an impatient laugh at my hausfrau fastidiousness, and like a bat into the dark, he hurtled his nakedness at mine. So that's a taste of the kind of room that he finds himself randomly able to just get into. And of course, the real Nick Albury was involved in this squatter's rights movement and um, kind of open sourcing uh, you know, very much the, the pioneer of the open society, the structure of the internet, all of this stuff, he's, he's on the cutting edge of it in real life. And uh, this character is very similar. And then you'll definitely know why this has to be Nick Albury, uh, at a minimum, uh, when you read how he is, his, his final uh, action in the novel. Ivan comes to say, I'm afraid your friend Palm has finally gone round the bend. Tristram gave a harsh rap at the evening standard with his tapered finger. The coarse-grained photograph showed Palm and his men in flowing robes, presumably of cheesecloth and of saffron yellow, over baggy trousers, gaiters, and headbands with two soft sacks slung across their shoulders, squatting outside the conference hall, holding up a large banner stretched between two poles. Only the bold headline of their manifesto was legible. The last warning from the world elsewhere. Why the last, I wonder, I said. Just the kind of infantile grandiloquence they go in for. It's pathetic. Darling, I have a sore throat. Talk too much in the airless, smoky room. Would you make me a hot lemon and honey with some whiskey in it? Mumbling to myself. Grandiloquence, grandilomaquence. She's got to learn the word. She, she's always makes a show of that. I made the hot drink. Then, too lazy to look up the word in the dictionary at once, I sat below Tristram's bed with the evening standard. It was my habit, dropping my head to one shoulder, to first read the stop press column on the back page in case the Chinese, or an earthquake, or yet another typhoon, had attacked Japan in the last several hours. She expects an attack from China even then? That's kind of wild. Um, Anti-China sentiment in Japan has really exploded in recent years, but it wasn't so strong. You know, I think that actually marks her as a real particular kind of elite within Japan, as do other things that she says. Um, I tilted my head and read, What does this m I shook the paper in front of Tristram. What? 
here, this self, self-immolation? Lord Pomeroy tried to attack the Prime Minister at a Blackpool cinema, then set fire to himself. In the confusion, a security guard shot dead one of his followers. Tristram lifted his hand toward his ear as if to shield it from a draught. A draft. The phone is ringing. I ran downstairs and switched the telephone on to his bedroom. When I flew back to his room, he was shouting, Hello, hello, a long-distance call must be Juliet. I'd rather you talk to her. He threw the receiver at me. Daddy Sugarheim was on the line, without being preceded, as was usually the case by his secretary and a personal assistant or two. No, she doesn't know yet. She's on her way to Center Island with the baby and nurse. So far, we've been unable to track her down. She's due there in about an hour and a half. But Palm is really, is he really dead? Really? Yep, that he is. I removed the receiver from my ear and looked at it with a confused but intense feeling, almost an anger. Dead? Dead? What does that mean? Dead? Tristram snatched the receiver and continued the conversation. Apparently, the UK Sugarheim's managing director had received in the late morning an express registered letter from Blackpool addressed to Mr. Sugarheim, marked personal and strictly confidential. Only after Palm's death was reported to the, his office by one of the garage attendants who had heard the news on his radio did the director telephone Mr. Sugarheim in New York and tell him about the letter. Mr. Sugarheim told his English employee to open and read the letter to him. Palm gave no explanation whatsoever for his contemplated action, but simply and earnestly pleaded with his father-in-law to look after the legal defense of the four boys, should they be arrested and tried after his death. Mother had often praised my screw-up stomach for always keeping what it received, but for a few days following the October 3rd, I retched every time I saw photographs or read articles on Palm's death or even thought about it. What I managed to reconstruct from various reports of the eyewitnesses was a scene whose goriness and appalling slapdashness made my hair stand on end, but it was unmistakably Palm's kind of exit. So attack the Prime Minister, you know, this is the Harold Wilson assassination plot, you know, as if it had gone forward in this way rather than, of course, being foiled by a whistleblower, largely. So was there really such a plot? Was there really such an operation to have an apparently left-wing hippie cult group go and assassinate him? You know, they've got another thing that they do is protest the Labor Party conference with their apocalyptic warnings and so on. So in that case, that would be the far right blaming the far left for its own uh, terror campaign and the ensuing coup d'etat that would, that would have come, presumably. You know? So Nobuko's explanation of what actually happened with Palm continues here. On the night of October 2nd, Palm and his gang hid themselves inside the ABC cinema after an evening performance by Engelbert Humperdinck. The following day, there was tight security for the PM's 28-minute interview with three journalists scheduled for transmission the same evening. Only the PM's own staff and the Thames television crew were allowed in. About two minutes after the interview had commenced, two doors into the stalls and another into the dress circle were flung open, and three men in jeans and t-shirts darted in, brandishing pistols and screaming, Keep calm! Hold up your hands and don't stop the cameras. Keep rolling whatever happens. Don't stop the cameras. 
One of them, a blonde, tall Adonis of a young man, leapt onto the stage and taking a hand grenade out of his shoulder sack, held it above his head for all the security guards and plainclothes men to see, then menacingly aimed it at the prime minister, who cowered behind the armchair in which he had been sitting. Meanwhile, the two other aggressors positioned themselves at strategically chosen exit doors, holding their pistols tight against their chests. The Adonis, that is, Carl, he's been introduced in the novel, I think, repeatedly urged the two cameramen to go on filming as he anxiously eyed the stage left wing, from whence a few moments later strode Palm, wrapped up in multitudinous layers of cheesecloth, drenched and dripping as if he had just taken a shower, barefoot and apparently empty-handed. Hardly had he made his splashy entrance when the lights went out. Christ, what the hell? One of the crouching journalists heard, hurled Carl hiss in panic. Don't move, or... Another voice shouted from the back of the stalls. No one moved. The two cameramen desperately hugged the cameras that had gone dead and silent. It was the wizened old chief electrician of the cinema, a veritable hero the following morning in the press, who had wrecked Palm's design for a spectacularly public death, his burning body branding a lasting memory on millions of television-watching eyeballs. How was the man to know that the intruders in fact had no interest, murderous or otherwise, in the PM's person? Hmm... So she inserts a denial that the life of the prime minister was actually being targeted, but only after raising the specter of an assassination plot against the labor prime minister, which today we know was something that was really happening. So can it be that Nick Albury and the, the free festival movement, the Windsor festival movement, is actually the name of his larger movement, which I'll get into in the next episode. Could it be that that was actually connected to Operation Clockwork Orange in some way? Nobuko's description of the event continues. With the presence of mind common amongst workaday technicians, he did not hesitate to throw the main switches, plunging the whole house into total darkness. I'll still do it, said Palm matter-of-factly. Everyone heard a wet thud on the front of the stage, followed by a firm, low voice reciting, I die not as a challenge, but in a spirit of atonement. Suddenly, in the pitch dark of the cinema, a flame flared open as if by a magic, and engulfed a sitting statue of a man, straight-backed, head held high on calm shoulders, as he went on reciting what the journalists later described as quite banal and sophomoric pacifist stuff, he casually tossed away a small cigarette lighter and put both hands on his lap. They said that the flames were so intense, billowing higher and higher in spirals, that the burning man's speech soon began faltering. The last words heard from his live lips were, Reach out for a world elsewhere. Those near the quickly charring human flesh were blinded by stinging fumes and coughing violently in the heat and dry stench. One of the security guards told the press that the inflamed body diminished in size at an alarming speed, but not once did it waver or bend. As the burning man lost his speech, the blonde Adonis staggered a few steps forward, handling his pistol in such a way as to appear to shoot the prime minister. As the eerie, eye-stinging flames were the only source of light in the house, standing behind it, he was an easy target. One of the plainclothes men, ducking between the empty rows of seats in the stalls, fired. The young man fell dead. 
The hand grenade, it was discovered later, was not real, and the autopsy showed that in Carl's corpse were buried two bullets, one in the chest, the other through the neck, and lodged in the head, which incontestably proved that he had shot himself a split second before the detective's bullet felled him. This gave rise to an ugly rumor that he had joined Palm in a double suicide, that he was a part of Palm's pagan fantasy, that it confirmed Palm's homosexuality, or that it was a symbolic gesture inviting other youths to follow his example, die, and atone for the world's sins, and so on. All this, however, in my opinion, was utter nonsense. For example, in the case of Carl's death, either Carl had lost his head and acted outside the synopsis laid down by Palm, or he had his own muddled reason for following Palm in death. In Palm's original scenario, as clearly attested by his own letter to his father-in-law, the four boys, including Carl, were to survive him. So, what else does that remind you of? Obviously, Mishima. This is a... And, of course, Ivan Morris was tight with Mishima. And he saw Mishima right before Mishima's death, and Nobuko would have been with him at that time. Nobuko would have known him. Um, was she actually fucking Mishima? <laughs> that would have been... Now, Mishima giving her a baby would have presented uh, some rather different uh, problems. But uh, how about that? And, you know, whatever happens here, the Ivan Morris character always pops in, and he is never shocked by anything. Uh, that is striking. He says... I'm so relieved. Juliet's much calmer and more controlled than I ever imagined possible. A widow of an exceptional man, whether a martyr or a criminal or a saint, often throws herself with maniacal energy into shrine-building to her late remarkable husband's memory and can lead a perfectly rewarding and even interesting life, said Tristram. He's, <laughs> he's just totally like, yeah, that's the plan. Uh, a little bit, a little bit. I'm not sure here. So, does that mean, what does that mean about Mishima as well, is, is a final question that I will leave you with uh, for now. Together with also the fact that, uh, another place here, Ivan makes Nobuko read H.G. Wells's Outline of History. What does that remind you of? Check out my Ruling Classes Have Always Wanted Us Dead episode um, on the Atra Hasis. That one, uh, you, you, we get into H.G. Wells, you know, um, Two Young Badass shows how H.G. Wells, very early on, he was maybe the first mention of the idea of the atomic bomb. And he shows from that point, and then later in The Shape of Things to Come, shows very much he's encoding and, and broadcasting high ruling class plans for the, you know, all kinds of great resets that they had in mind even back in the early 20th century. So that's some high spookiness right there that he would be referencing that. So how about that? <laughs> Let's take a minute and uh, wrap up here, I guess, um, before we move on next time into the details of the actual Nick Albury, right? Um, one of the main the clearest signals that this is Nick Albury is in addition to his general profile and the fact that Nobuko later married his father, right? So if there was something going on between them during her marriage to his father, 
then then this would be sort of about hiding that from his father. Uh, is the thing about wanting to give a baby uh, actually happening under uh, Donald Albury, the, the theater empresario? Uh, that's who he is, by the way. And that's what Nobuko actually does. Reading this novel, you don't get a sense of her doing anything. She's just like a totally uh, hanging out with uh, twiddling her thumbs or something. But in fact, of course, she's running theater productions and things. And that's, part, that's what this world is. And um, I think it suggests a lot about the kinds of people that are in that world or that rise to the highest ranks of it. They actually have quite a lot of connections to intelligence and so on. Because what is intelligence other than uh, putting on a lot of different kinds of shows? Am I right? And there's a lot more to say about the real-life person who's mostly, I think, behind this character of Palm, who is Nicholas Albury, one of a few distinguished uh, sons that Donald Albury had. But right now, I will confine myself to just telling you what he did. He did something that is extremely like what Palm is depicted doing here in a couple ways, right? He did not commit suicide. He actually died in a sudden car accident in June of 2001. In fact, he wrote his book, uh, Rehearsal for the Year 2000, as if he was expecting something at that point. But uh, he didn't actually live to see the big event of 2001. But Nick Albury uh, did all kinds of things. He was a pioneer in kind of the early rumblings of the internet, and he was a pioneer of the hippie movement. And uh, this book, if like, you know, what's known about him is only the tip of the iceberg, which he certainly cultivates that image, uh, then he might have been part of a whole lot more. But one thing that he definitely did was 1974, in October, just like in the novel, the elections, there are elections being held, and his group took uh, took out a spot on the BBC, and they supposedly there was some kind of fight in the studio between them or with the BBC staff or something, and what ended up airing is just like footage of a tree together with their manifesto, which was a very kind of situationist kind of just use your... But situationist, but all combined with Great Reset, combined with like stuff that's extremely prescient about kind of where we're heading, you know, like free, like you'll be totally, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy, almost like headed toward that, right? Plus, like, it's all going to start right now just with you and me getting real groovy in our hearts right here, kind of rhetoric. I had a YouTube <laughs> video that had this whole broadcast and like signal jacking uh, event on it, but it has disappeared. It has disappeared. I'm trying to get it off the Wayback Machine right now. Uh, I will either drop the audio here or I will find that I will get the text. I know that I have the text of it as well and I will read that text and I will let that be the end of this episode right now. So, I'm Fergal Schmoodlock, and I have anointed you with the anointing of the kingless generation.
So I really was not able to recover the video of the signal jacking event on the BBC in October 1974, uh, carried out by Nick Albury and friends. But what you see on the screen is Nick Albury wearing a mask that looks like a Bodhidharma, like a, a grimacing Zen monk. And he's in a robe. And the camera just kind of very inexpertly kind of zooms out and pans over to a potted tree that is there. And uh, there's a sign that refers to some kind of drama between the the group and the BBC people or something. But, you know, this this was a time slot in the BBC's programming that was open to members of the public who wanted to just get on and give a message. So I don't know if you can technically call it signal jacking or whatever. But from the book Waiting for Utopia, The Albion Free State, Windsor Free Festivals, and Radical Britain by John Cruzy, uh, I have the full text of the manifesto, so I'll just read that here. Albion Free State Manifesto, a kind of alternative society, election manifesto. We more or less believe, ideally, every day is an election and everyone is a candidate. One, Albion is the other England of peace and love which William Blake foresaw in vision a country free of dark satanic mills and similar big brother machinations. Two, the only state is your state of mind, and the only government is your body. Three, the world is a common treasure house for all. Use your birth certificate as a credit card for free love, free shelter, free food, and freedom to do whatever doesn't infringe the freedom of others. Money is the meanest measurement of human energy there is. Human energy needs no measurement. As for the drudgery of jobs, we know there are enough aware people to do the necessary day-to-day -day caretaking. 4. We can be kind and act gently to most living creatures. The present system has its attractions. Weapons technology is intricate and fascinating. Genocide is impressively methodical and efficient, but in AFS, Albion Free State, there is enough magic and mystery and miracles and daily adventures to snuff out forever the esoteric rituals of war and killing. 5. AFS looks after its own. There's no need to rip off the third world. Consume less and grow your own. There is enough cultivable land in this country for every household to be self-sufficient on a minimum of two and a quarter acres, with larger homesteads possible for communal groupings. 6. The dispossessed of the country need land for diverse needs, permanent free festival sites, collectives, and cities of life and love. Maybe one every 50 miles or so, manned and womaned by people freed from dead-end jobs and from slavery in factories producing non-essential consumer items. These will be places where children can be parented by the community, where every child has many parents, where women, children, and old people can be freed from their oppressed roles. They will be places small-scale enough to be run by consensus, without bosses and rules you didn't agree to. 7. We beware of substitutes. Beware. Reality is a substitute for utopia.
Politics is a substitute for instinct. Consumption is a substitute for feeling. Aeroplanes are a substitute for levitation. Smoking's a substitute for inner fire. Reproduction's a substitute for immortality. And so on. We more or less advocate a five-year here-and-now plan. 1. Moving towards near-total self-sufficiency is a long-term aim. Meanwhile, to survive and thrive on this system's incredible wastage. Take over waste land, waste buildings, waste clothes, waste paper, waste shit, waste food. The original diggers, the true levelers, in 1649 grew corn by taking over common land. And for the last three years, Christiania, the first free city in Europe, has squatted an army camp in Copenhagen and developed about 80 acres of parkland and 70 or so barrack buildings. It's a place for dancing and music and nakedness and workshops and crafts and food cooperatives and winemaking and chickens and goats. AFS needs its own Christianias. There are hundreds of disused and deserted farms that need liberating and caring for and thousands of empty urban buildings, all power to those already squatting. Paying rent is a cruel relic of feudal times. 2. Some of us are trying to give up eating animals. Eating meat may be a cruel mistake, in the same vein as Martians eating humans. Anyway, a vegetarian agriculture requires less land than a meat agriculture. In the present system, the stronger species prey on the weaker, just as the rich prey on the poor. In AFS, we are confident the lion will lie down with the lamb. 3. We say fear eats the soul. We say joyless work causes cancer. For instance, how many diseases would evaporate if we could demonstrate that harmony and joy are a higher and stronger influence than society's belief in medical science and dogma? And if we could reduce the environmental stresses that allow dis-ease to fester? Plus, we can reabsorb mental hospital victims back into the local community. Every sensitive community can cope with and learn from a percentage of spaced-out people. 4. Regular weekly festivals to rub off the week's accumulated bullshit that so easily encrusts us. Festivals are for turning the world on its head, for clowns and chaos, and kings and queens, a chance to drop old constricting roles, a taste of music, dancing, love and anarchy, a chance to tap the reservoir of energy and inspiration we often don't bother to break through to. 5. All religions tend to become tyrannies. In AFS, there are 1,001 ways to stay high. Jam open the doors of perception. With chanting, fucking, dancing, working, dreaming, visions, magic mushrooms, yoga, and a lifetime's full of other possibilities. 6. Revolutionize drinking. Drink is today's religion, the opium that gives our money back to the system. Drink to get high, drink to take over our local pubs, and if that fails, then to start local licensed clubs brewing our own drinks. Pubs as local energy centers, community headquarters for conspiracies and radical activities and family festivities 
with a regular distribution of profits, not to the big brewers, but to local community projects. And of course, neighborhood and workers' control of local factories, businesses, banks, and supermarkets, which could become food cooperatives. To take back control of our lives from the capitalists, from the supranational corporations, from the Eurocrats in Brussels, and from politicians everywhere, the end result being a network, which already exists in embryo, of independent collectives and communities federated together to form the AFS. 7. Pay no taxes to central government. Support only what you and your neighbor believe in. For instance, if you believe in dustmen, send your money direct. CLAP, the community levy for alternative projects, is an alternative tax which works this way. It just describes which projects up and down the country need money, equipment, and people, and leaves it to you to choose which to support. 8. It's not hard to dent the old system. Everyone can do their bit. Even symbolic gestures help. For instance, bicycle rickshaws instead of cars, or digging up the fast lane of your local motor motorway for allotments. Or, finally, here's an invitation. There's a vision of the year 2000, which AFS plans to rehearse at the spring equinox, March 21st, 1975, from rush hour, 5 p.m., to sunset, sheep grazing and people strolling naked down Piccadilly. See you there. Everyone's your mate in Albion Free State. If not now, when? Turn the urge into a surge and join the legion of joy. Cette année-là, je chantais pour la première fois. Le public ne me connaissait pas. Oh, quelle année cette année-là! Cette année-là, le rock and roll venait d'ouvrir ses ailes, et dans mon coin je chantais belle, 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 et le public aimait ça. Déjà, les Beatles étaient quatre garçons. Dans le vent et moi, ma chanson disait marcher tout droit. Oh, cette année-là, quelle joie d'être l'idole des jeunes pour des fans qui cassaient les fauteuils. Oh, plus j'y pense et moins j'oublie. J'ai découvert mon premier, mon dernier amour Le seul, le grand, l'unique Et pour toujours le public cette année-là Les guitares tirées sur les violons On croyait qu'une révolution 
Tanela. Sainte-Dame 